Products and services are what organizations use to advance their cause, but they are not themselves the cause. That's the message on this episode with Simon Sinek. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 473. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Today's guest is one of the folks who continues to inspire me and in my work and helps all of us to embrace a just cause. I'm so glad to welcome back to the show Simon Sinek. He is an unshakable optimist who's devoted his professional life to help advance a vision of the world that does not yet exist, a world which the vast majority of people wake up every morning inspired, feel safe at work, and return home fulfilled at the end of the day. You may know him best for popularizing the concept of why, which he described in his first TED Talk in 2009. That talk went on to become the second most watched TED Talk of all time, today surpassing 50 million views. His interview on millennials in the workplace propelled his name to be the fifth most searched term on YouTube in 2017. He is the author of five best-selling books, including Start With Why, Leaders Eat Last, and his newest book, the Infinite Game. Simon, glad to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. I wanted to ask you about something that you posted on LinkedIn in the last couple of weeks when everything happened with COVID-19. You were very kind to record a meeting you had a team huddle with your staff, about 20 people, and posted online for everyone. And you made the point that despite everyone saying that these are unprecedented times we are in, you said these are not unprecedented times. What got you thinking that way? Well, I mean, if we lived for a thousand years, as opposed to 70 or 80 years that we live for now, this would definitely not be a new thing. And it's unprecedented in the sense that it's sudden. And most of us have never lived through a global pandemic before. There have been epidemics in certain nations before. But I think the thing that's most important to remember is that facing sudden change or change in culture, or change in technology, or change in things that force us to reevaluate the way we build our businesses, for example, is not unprecedented. The internet completely turned things upside down. <laughs> the iPhone completely turned things upside down and forced uh, companies to reevaluate how they conducted their businesses and created entirely new companies and entirely new industries. Yes, COVID is more sudden. Yes, it's more jarring than the change that a new technology produces. But being forced to change because of the changing times is not unprecedented in business. It's a really interesting entry point for the infinite game. Of course, you wrote this book before the pandemic, and yet reading through it, thinking about it through that lens is really brings a whole new level of your thinking to this. For those who aren't familiar with the concept, you make a distinction in the book between a finite game and an infinite game. What's the distinction? So this goes back to the 1980s. Um, a philosopher by the name of James Carse articulated two, times of, two types of games, finite games and infinite games. A finite game is defined as known players, fixed rules, and an agreed-upon objective. Baseball, football, now there's always a beginning, middle, and end. And if there's a winner, there has to be a loser. Then you have infinite games. Infinite games are defined as known and unknown players, which means any player can join at any time. The rules are changeable, which means you can play however you want. And the objective is to perpetuate the game, to stay in the game as long as possible. We are players in infinite games every day of our lives. 
There's no such thing as being number one in your marriage, for example. There's no such, win- no such thing as winning education or winning careers. And there's definitely no such thing as winning business. Nobody's declared the winner of business. And yet, if we listen to the language of so many leaders, they talk about being number one, being the best, or beating their competition. Based on what? Based upon what agreed upon objectives, timeframes, or metrics. It doesn't exist. And the problem is when we play with a finite mindset in an infinite game, when we play to win in a game that has no finish line, there are some predictable and consistent outcomes. The decline of trust, the decline of cooperation, and the decline of innovation. What's the mistake that organizations make in not looking at things like an infinite game? Well, they think of, uh, like I said, they, they, they try to win or be number one or be the best when there is literally no such thing. And so they pick arbitrary competitors to compete against and then miss new entrants into the, into the marketplace. You know, MySpace had no idea that Facebook even existed. They weren't even looking for them. When you play with a finite ni- mindset in infinite game, you pick arbitrary dates, um, you pick arbitrary metrics, and yet the company could be, uh, could be failing. Look at General Motors. General Motors decided that market share was, was king. And so every decision it made and every bonus that it issued to its employees was all about growing market share, except they were bleeding money. They, weren't, <laughs> they were losing profits. So you can't sustain a business with number one market share if you have no profit. But that's the problem. They were trying to be number one in a game that there was no such thing as being number one. Like you said, we hear the number one used a lot or some version of that by a lot of leaders and organizations. For organizations that are thinking about things through the lens of an infinite game. How does that sound different? So the infinite game, uh, when you're playing with an infinite mindset, it's, it's predominantly a game of self-improvement, constant improvement, which is you never think you're the best, but you always think you can be better. And your biggest competitor is yourself. And absolutely, you, you look to, your, to the other players in the game, other companies, other leaders for comparison but not to outdo them, but rather you look to them to reveal the weaknesses that your company may be experiencing because somebody else is better than you, and you work to improve your company. It's basically a game of constant improvement and constant growth. People know you a lot for your call and invitation to us to start with why. And one of the phrases that just leaps out to me in the infinite game is the principle of a just cause. I'm wondering if you could tell us about the distinction between a why and a just cause. Sure. Um, a why comes from the past. It is where it is an origin story. It is the sum total of how we were raised, the, the, way our, the, the, the lessons our parents taught us, things like that. It's the same for companies. Uh, a why is an origin story. It's the reason why the company was founded in the first place. It's, a, it's, a, it's an origin story and it's objective and it never changes for an individual for sure. A just cause is about the future. It's a vision of the future that we want to build. It's where we're looking to go. So think of the why as the foundation of a house. It's not necessarily seen the whole time, but it provides structure and shape, and it never changes ever. And think of uh, the just cause as the kind of house you want to build. And as you're building it, you might make changes and additions, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to follow the basic foundation that the house is built upon. Is it overly simplistic to say that the why is the who we are, and the just cause is the where we're going? Uh, it's not overly simplistic. It's wrong. Um, <laughs> oh, how so? <laughs> so the sum total of the why, how, and the what is who we are. It's our purpose, cause, or belief. It's how we operate and the values that we hold dear, and it's what we do that make us who we are. You can have a crystal clear why, but if you don't act on that why, 
then people won't know what you believe. And people will say things like, it's like, I don't know who you are anymore. So who we are is when those three pieces are in balance. But then, yes, you're right. The, the just cause is where we're going. That's uh, for sure. Ah, okay, great. That's super helpful. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about that because we hear these words tossed around a lot. Purpose, mission, vision, why. And it's it's hard to really separate them sometimes. And what I'm hearing you say is the just cause sounds like the vision a bit, but is there a, is there a distinction between how you think about vision and how you think about a just cause? Yeah, I tend to steer away from com- uh, words like purpose, vision, and mission uh, predominantly because there's no standard definitions of those words, just as you said. And so, you know, some people think mission comes first, some th- people think vision comes first, but they might be mean different things, um, or they use the, uh, the different words to describe the same thing. You know, some people will say our vision is to be, you know, the best company in this industry. Well, that's not really a vision; that's just a long-term goal. So I've I've thrown all those words out because they just create confusion. But fundamentally, a just cause is a vision. That's correct. But the reason I call it a just cause is because we want to uh, advance a cause so just that we would be willing to sacrifice to see that cause advanced, which is technically what a vision should be. We call it vision because it's something we can see. It's something in the future. Mission is more like the things we have to do to get there. But yes, vision and just cause can be used interchangeably. It's it's one of the concepts in the book that just leapt out at me as being so critical to doing the kind of work that you are so passionate about organizations doing, and yet also something that I imagine most organizations miss, at least it seems like to me, and I'm sure you run into this all the time too. And for those who would be open to this invitation of thinking about things like a just cause, I I think it would be so helpful for folks to get a sense of what this really is. And I you identify in the book five standards, five key pieces of really uh, diving in on a just cause. And the first one is that you say it's for something. It's affirmative and it's optimistic. What does that sound like? So to be for something is about advancing, right? It's about going forwards as opposed to being against. So for example, think about it in terms of charities, right? Somebody says, we're trying to stamp out poverty. Well, nobody wants to wake up in the morning to stamp something out. We want to wake up in the morning to build something. So instead of stamping out poverty, we are trying, which by the way, is never going to happen because it's, it's relative and, and, and it's idealistic, though it's a worthy goal, rather to, to see it as an advancement. We're going to create a world in which every single family can provide, every single person can provide for themselves and their families. Now, the, the conclusion is we're going to stamp out poverty, but we're being for something. We're building something rather than being against something. It's the same in politics. Instead of being against the other party, we want to be for what we stand for. We want to advance something. This is what it means to stand for something as opposed to standing against. Standing for something is optimistic and, and inviting. Standing against something is, is negative and repelling. Well, and I suppose to go to the next logical step there is if you are against something, then the more successful your organization is at being against something, <laughs> the more that thing is in the world, whatever that thing is you're against, in a way, like sort of an eye dichotomy, just being having an organization that's against something. I mean, it happens all the time. It's like we exist because, you know, like I, when, I, when I was young in my career, I was in advertising and there would always be these new startup ad agencies and you'd ask them what they stand for and they'd be like, we're against the big, the big corporate ad agency. That's what distinguishes us, you know? Well, how about standing for a way of doing business or how about standing for a client or how about standing you know, for a, a, a philosophy that you're trying to advance a world in which 
advertising exists in a certain way, simply being a, against a, a large entity, what happens if you become big? What happens if you're offered a lot of money? I used to scoff at them because you know they'd all get to a point where they would be offered huge amounts of money to become a part of those huge conglomerates. And guess what? They always sold out. So you know, I, I think it's ironic to be against something. It's a weak sort of um, purpose to have. Who do you see that does that well these days? Who stands for something? Yeah. I think a sweet green is really good, the salad company. They stand for, for local farmers and eating healthy. I think Airbnb does a decent job. They stand for connectivity. I think Microsoft has refound its purpose. Um, it's gone back to, back to the founding purpose of productivity for all. I think there's some good examples. Microsoft's an interesting example because you go after them a bit sometimes in some of your talks, at least in the past, and, and how they tended to in the past look at things a little bit more of the, you know, we're going to be number one, we're going to go after Apple, that kind of stuff. What did they do to shift to be more for something? Well, they changed CEOs. <laughs> Steve Ballmer, when he was in charge, he was the COO with Bill Gates, and he was a very talented executive, but he's not a visionary executive. He was an operator put in a visionary position, and he became obsessed with the short term. He became obsessed with the numbers. He became obsessed with beating Apple. And he, he drove the company uh, very hard to, to achieve finite objectives, only finite objectives. He defined the company's success only in finite terms. Now that Satya Nadella has taken over, he's thinking much more in terms of visionary terms and less about comparison, but more about what the company is doing to advance its own, its own cause. And it's become a really inspiring place to work again. Once again, Microsoft has become very appealing to talent where for a long time it was uh, nobody wanted to work there. And the business results have shown it too. One of the other key principles around, or standards rather, you call them, around the just cause is that the just cause is inclusive. It's open to those who want to contribute. Tell me more about what that means. So one of the ideals of a, of a just cause is that anyone who believes in it can do something to contribute towards it. And that doesn't mean you have to work for the company. It can be being a champion for the brand, even if you don't own the product. Think about Harley-Davidson. There are people who own Harley-Davidson t-shirts, but don't own a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. It's because they believe in the ideals of the organization, and they can still feel like they can champion the cause. So anyone in, in any capacity can feel like they can do something to advance or contribute. If it's an invitation, then you have a, a really just cause. If it's, a, if it's excessively exclusive and disallows other people to join, even if they believe in it, then it's, it's probably not a just cause to begin with. How does an invitation allow that to happen? I'm just kind of curious how that looks for an organization to do a good job at making an invitation and allowing people to feel like they can engage. So think of it in, in, in company terms. Uh, when it's done poorly, for example, organizations will define their value based on, say, engineering or technology. And so it only really invites engineers or technologists to contribute. You know, it says we're going to be, you know, the number one engineering company in the world. Well, what happens if you're a lawyer for the company, or if you're an assistant, or if you're in the, if you're the receptionist? How do you get to contribute to that? It's exclusive and it's alienating. What great organizations do is they allow anybody at any level to feel like they can make a contribution. Take the company Barry Waymiller, based in uh, St. Louis. You know, the way they define their cause is that everyone matters, and they define success based on how they touch the lives of other people. So they expect, for example a receptionist to have a positive impact on the lives of everybody that that receptionist interacts with that day. Everyone can feel like they're contributing in some way, shape, or form to advancing the cause. When you observe the leaders in their organization and the other organizations that do a really good job at thinking about inclusivity, 
What kind of things do you hear come out of their mouths that you don't hear at the companies that aren't thinking about that? They evaluate people based on, first and foremost, based on whether they're a good cultural fit. You know, they're values-based organizations and they look to evaluate people whether they fit culturally, not based on whether they just have a, a stellar resume and, and a particular skill set. That stuff's important, but it comes second. Finite-minded organizations tend to only evaluate people based on skill set because it's a selfish disposition, right? What can you do for us? Not, are you going to fit here and going to thrive in our culture? So you, you tend to see that inclusivity come out in, in how they evaluate the fits for their culture and what they want to give back to their people. They want their people to feel like they belong as opposed to that they're just paid to do a job. You invite organizations also to take on the standard of being service-oriented, really be there for the primary benefit of others. That's a key part of a just cause. This one, as I was thinking about being service-oriented, of course, most companies serve customers. Almost any organization would say, we're service-oriented, we take care of the customer. What's different about the organizations that truly are service-oriented? Well, they actually believe that. There are organizations that view customers simply as a means to an end, which is just as a, a source of revenue to advance some financial goal. They view customer service as a necessary evil rather than something to truly be in service to, to other human beings. I mean, compare Zappos customer service to another organization's customer service. You know, other organizations, they measure the success of their customer service departments, for example, how many calls they can service in a day versus how well they service those calls in a day. Zappos doesn't count how many calls they service because they don't care how many they service. Now, some companies would say, well, that's inefficient, but it also helps make Zappos not only one of the best customer service organizations in the country, but it commands a fierce, fierce loyalty from, from customers because of, because of the kind of customer service they get. Being customer-oriented means we're genuinely trying to help our customers live a better life or solve the problems they're trying to solve. Every company says their customer service, like every company says their employees matter. But look at the decisions they make, the way they incentivize their people, and the way they actually treat people, and you know, actions speak louder than words. I'm curious when you interact with leaders at an organization that is really service-oriented, what do you find that they are messaging to not just the customer service teams, but what are they saying to the entire organization about the customer? Well, they, they insist that we treat customers like human beings and they remind their people that they're not just numbers or data points, but rather they're human beings and they have their own stresses and strains and to, to view them and treat them as human beings. I'll give you an example of an organization that views customers differently. Let's use an airline example. I'm not picking on airlines. It's just a simple example. We've all had the experience where we want to get on an earlier flight and we call customer service to see if we can jump on an earlier flight. So imagine the, you, know, you, you get somebody on the phone, you say, hey, listen, my business trip ended earlier. I checked online. I see there's a flight leaving earlier that gets me home. I see it has empty seats on it. Can I please get on that, can I please get on that plane? I want to get home to my family. And the, other, the customer service agent says to you, I'm sorry, you have the wrong class of ticket. You're not allowed on that flight. And you say, please, please, can I get on that flight? I, I don't mind paying the change fee. You know, just please, I'd love to get on that earlier flight so I can get home. And the customer service agent says, I'm sorry, I told you, you have the wrong class of ticket. There's nothing I can do. You can't get on that flight, right? Now, here's, here, here's what it sounds like if you have a customer service oriented organization that has instilled in their customer service agents, not to necessarily enforce the rules, but to help the customer achieve what they're trying to achieve. You call up, you make the same request. The customer service agent says, here's the problem. You have the wrong class of ticket, but let me see what I can do. Click, 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 click. Okay, that didn't work. Let me try again. Click, 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 click. 
let me talk to my supervisor. We're, let me, we're going to try very hard to get you home to your family. Hold on a second. Comes back, sir, I'm so, so sorry. I've tried everything I can. I've talked to my supervisor. The problem is the computer just won't let us do it because of the class of ticket. I'm so, so sorry. Now you get the same outcome. You can't get on the earlier flight, but in one, you actually feel like the other person cares and the other one you don't. And you actually have a better feeling towards the company that tried, even though you didn't get what you want. That's what customer, good customer orientation sounds like. So many organizations want that, as you said, aspire to that, certainly espouse that. And yet that's almost never the experience in most organizations as a customer calling up and having that kind of interaction. Is it what you said earlier? Is it finding the cultural fit or is there something else in addition that really brings that heart into the interactions that you don't so often hear? It's good leadership. Good leadership will produce that result. If the people feel like somebody cares about them as human beings, then guess what? They'll care about customers as human beings. If the people feel like they're disposable numbers, then guess what? They'll treat people like disposable numbers. If the people inside the organization are driven to make short-term numbers and, and, and their employment depends on it, then guess what? They're going to beg, borrow, and steal and lie, you know, do whatever they need to do to achieve those numbers. But if they're told to take care of people and they're rewarded for going out of their way for taking care of people and they're recognized for taking care of people, then guess what they'll do? They'll take care of people. Good leadership is usually the source of all of these good organizations and substandard leadership or lack of leadership training is, does the opposite. I am curious in this world today, the leaders who are really doing some wonderful work with not only getting training for themselves and getting training for their teams, what kind of things are they doing that you see really do move the needle on changing behavior? Well, they have leadership training programs to begin with. Leadership training is not a two-day offsite you know, once a year with a bit of golf. That's not a leadership off, that's not leadership training. That's a nice thing to do, but a good leadership training program is robust and, and continuous. You say at the top of your program, leaders are made, not born. It's a skill set like any other, and we can teach and learn that skill and we can practice that skill, but if we don't teach it, we don't get it. Just because someone was good at their job doesn't mean they're good at leading other people to do that job. Um, that's why we get managers and not leaders, because we promote people who are good at their jobs, but we didn't teach them how to do the new job. You know, when, when you get promoted to a leadership position, you're no longer responsible for the results. You're responsible for the people who are responsible for the results. You're no longer responsible for the customer. You're responsible for the people who are responsible for the customer. And so we have to teach that skill set. It includes things like active listening, effective confrontation, how to give and receive feedback. Uh, I mean, th- there are basic tenets of leadership that just are not taught in companies. One of the other standards that you highlight is the ability to be resilient and to endure political and technological and cultural change. We are in the midst of a huge change right now, and you write in The Infinite Game, our products and services are some of the things we use to advance our cause. They are not themselves the cause. My sense is that that distinction is lost in a lot of organizations. What's different about the organizations that truly have resiliency? Resiliency is defining yourself by your cause, not your product, and your product is the means to an end. So for example, let's take my work. Like I give a lot of public speeches. Well, not anymore. <laughs> so you know, if I just double down on my old business model, I can, I can scrimp and save and try and get by with the hope that there, I can give public speeches when this is all over. Or worse, I can double down on my old business model and just try and give online speeches. But what I really want to do is advance my own cause, which is to create a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe wherever they are, and end the day fulfilled. Well, 
I don't have to just give speeches to do that. And so we're looking for entirely new ways to advance that cause, doing things that we've never done before. We're developing online training that we've never had before because we're looking for new ways. We're going to come out of this an entirely different company. In other words, we never defined ourselves by our product. We defined ourselves by our cause and we allow the products to adapt based on time, culture, technology. Compare that to taxi companies. You know, Uber didn't put taxi companies out of business. A hailing app is not what did it. Any taxi can have an app that calls a taxi. It's because they got complacent. And when Uber showed up, they didn't improve their product. This is what it means to adapt. If you define yourself by your product, you're probably dead in the water. And you said that in the video of the team huddle you did several yeah. weeks ago of making the point to your team, we will change. We're going to come out of this a different organization than we are today. We have to. Uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. And yet, I think most organizations, most leaders don't think to go there quickly or they're forced to go there over time. And there are organizations that are struggling with that right now. For the person who is not immediately thinking about resiliency, mm. what is it? That helps them to get there faster. Well, crisis definitely helps. <laughs> yeah, you know, th this is not the slow boiling frog here, where the internet was the sl slow boiling frog, where you sort of this this incremental change starts to show up, and it you know it showed up in the seventies, and it started to creep in, and you know, it slowly grew and grew, and companies that did nothing over the course of those years went out of business, or are still struggling to adapt to an internet world. This is throwing a frog into boiling water; it's going to jump right out. So this is about the ability to, to adapt quickly and say, what can we do? I mean, there's two, two remarkable examples I've heard about, both restaurants. And I think restaurants are good examples because they were forced to sh close their doors. I mean, in what circumstances is literally, is a, is a business forced to close its doors? There's one company in New York, it's a fine dining restaurant and it's Italian food. And when they were forced to close their doors, they, instead of firing everybody and laying everybody off, they changed everybody's jobs. And now they're doing a robust delivery business, but they changed everybody's job. So they didn't need waiters and waitresses anymore. Now those people are helping packaging food and, and, and sorting out and sorting everything out, which is really, really fantastic. There's a pizza place I just read about in Chicago that had this pizza oven that of course, 70% of their business was doing pizza slices, but they found out that they can take uh, industrial grade plastic and they can melt it very easily. They can bend it very easily, heat it very easily in their pizza ovens. So they started making face masks for hospitals wow. um, using their pizza oven. I mean, so you can see this tremendous adaptability both inside their own industry and, and going outside of their industry because they have a, 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 a vision and they have a, a goal and they want to continue work and they, they're looking for creative ways to use the assets they have. I think that's brilliant. The final standard is being idealistic, a big, bold, and ultimately something unachievable. And, and that word was curious to me because I think the tendency for a lot of us as leaders is we want to paint a picture of something that the organization can achieve. You say unachievable though. Tell me more about that. So a true vision is an idealized vision of the future. Um, that's what a just cause is. It's an idealized vision of the future for all intents and purposes is unachievable. So for example, when our founding fathers in the United States laid out our just cause that all men are created equal, it's an idealized vision of this future, uh, of, this, of this country. Clearly, we will never get to a place where every person in this country is, is equal and that, we're, that we don't all get you know, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness in equal amounts, but we'll die trying. That's the point. And you can see our nation struggling to advance that with the abolition of slavery, women's suffrage, civil rights, all of which imperfect in their own right and still ongoing. But you can see it's a nation struggling to advance an ideal. That's what gives our lives purpose. 
what gives our lives purpose and meaning is that we're working to advance something bigger than ourselves. And we'll look back and say, yes, we moved the needle. We are closer to that vision than where we, were, than where we started. But for all intents and purposes, a, a, a truly great vision is practically unachievable. A question I ask often of our guests is, what have you changed your mind on recently? And I'm curious actually about your business and what you said earlier of your business changing because of the nature of what you do. And what I'm wondering about is, how is your mind changing right now? How is my mind changing? I mean, empathy is something we preach inside our company and trying to meet people where they are. But in times of crisis, it's an entirely different thing because people react to stress in different ways. Some of the folks in our team are in go mode and they're just sort of like, go, 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 go. And some people are sort of hunkering down uh, in fear and it's, there's no right or wrong. And so to meet people where they are and be empathetic and make sure that they, that they know someone's there and who's willing to listen is the best way to be there for people right now. So what I'm really like when you say change your mind, I don't think anything's changing my mind. I think what's happening is I'm realizing the value of all of those things that I've learned when there wasn't a crisis, how important they are in crisis. You know, we build trust during the good times. It should, it, it, we can't start to build trust during the hard times. We develop the skill of empathy and the muscle of empathy during, during the good times, during the easy times. It doesn't suddenly show up. These are all skills that need to be practiced. You know, listening skills. When somebody's having a hard time and we don't know how to listen, learning on the job during crisis makes it, a, it adds a new dimension. So I think I haven't changed my mind. I think if anything, I've had certain things reinforced that those tenets of leadership are so valuable and even more valuable in a crisis. Simon Sinek is the author of The Infinite Game and so many other best-selling books. Simon, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for your help. Related episodes to this conversation include episode 223, when Simon was last on, talking about starting with why. That is the title of his book as well, and a great compliment to this conversation because that is the the who you are as an organization. We touched on it a bit today, but for a lot more detail, go check out episode 223. It goes very well with this conversation. Also recommended, if you'd like to dive in a bit more on the tactical detail of how to actually write a vision, and the next steps beyond that, I'd recommend episode 345, How to Create a Vivid Vision with Cameron Harold. We talked through that process and how leaders can begin that process of creating the vision, getting it on paper, and then the next steps beyond that. Also recommended is episode 435, Tie Leadership Development to Business Results with Mark Allen. We talked about the three types of learning, experiential learning, coaching and mentoring, and then direct or classroom instruction in that conversation. And uh, as you heard elements of in this conversation, the importance of experiential learning, of getting out there and doing things. That's 70% of learning in a lot of organizations and in professional development for so many of us. Details on all of that in episode 435. And then finally, a wonderful example of a just cause on episode 463. Elizabeth Lillo was with us talking about leadership through massive change and how she, as one of our Academy members, has taken this time of change and really embraced their cause, which has stayed the same, but uh, done some very different things tactically in their gymnastics business uh, here in Nebraska in the United States. Uh, A wonderful story, and she is continuing to work on evolving that plan as time goes on, and uh, episode 463 is a wonderful 
inspiration and a real life story of a just cause in practice. Check that out as well. All of those episodes plus tons more are on the coachingforleaders.com website. The very best way to explore the website is to set up your free membership. When you do, you're going to get access to the entire episode library since 2011, searchable by topic. And that way you can dive in on the areas that are most important for you. One of the areas that this conversation will be filed under is strategy and also customer service and influence. Many other conversations we've had over the years related to those. All of that you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. When you set up your free membership, it'll give you access to search everything. In addition, it's also going to give you access to search my entire episode library and the member cast and also the weekly leadership guides that come out every Wednesday. You'll begin receiving those in your inbox with links and resources that I think will help support you in your leadership development, plus the key links from every episode that we air. In addition, access to my book notes. I've highlighted some of the key elements from Simon's book, as I have for many of the guests who've appeared on the show. All of those are available in the weekly leadership guides and inside the free membership portal check those out. Next week, I'm glad to welcome back to the show Stacy Barr. She is going to be teaching us on what to hold people accountable for. We talked recently about accountability with Jonathan Raymond, but what do you actually hold people accountable for? That conversation coming up next Monday. Have a great week, everyone. Take care.